Well, let's turn in our copy of God's Word this morning as we return to the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 20 is where we'll be this morning. This morning we're considering the seventh commandment that God has given to us, but let's begin reading verse 1 of chapter 20. God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, so that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. Our God and Father, we come to you in faith, asking, seeking, knocking on the merit of our Lord Jesus. You've promised that you will always hear us when we cry out to you. That you will always answer us. And you've promised that you will always and only give to us your best. And so, Father, we come as those hungry and thirsty. We come weary, doubtful. We come ignorant of so much, but confident of your goodness and your greatness. And so we ask, Lord, would you open up your word to us? Would you illuminate before us the goodness of your ways and the wisdom of your counsel to us? Lord, help us to hear of the great hope for sinners and the great confidence that we have in being united to your Son. Father, help me to speak boldly and clearly, faithfully, with all the conviction that a minister of your gospel ought to have. We ask this in the name of our Lord Jesus, our faithful high priest. Amen. By God's design, marriage is the primary human bond and foundation of all cultures. For if you will have a society, you must first have a family. And if you will have a family, there must be a marriage. Marriage is at the heart of human flourishing and cultural stability. And this is by God's design. Given the importance of marriage, it should not surprise us to find that God speaks to the preservation of marriage here in the Ten Commandments. 
And just like the commandment before it, the prohibition against adultery is abruptly straightforward. The intimacy that's designed for marriage to be kept within the bounds of marriage, seeking and finding union with someone other than your spouse, is a violation of God's command. Succinctly, abruptly, and straightforward. But as we hear this command that's delivered to us, served up in the negative of, you shall not, we must hear what that you shall not is preserving and what it's safeguarding. Much like a parent's command, you shall not run into the street, is not merely a prohibition against aimless street running, but it's actually a positive protection of the child. And so too the prohibition against adultery is not to be understood as a prudish restriction upon sexuality, but a protection and an exaltation, ultimately a cultivation of good sexuality. And so the seventh commandment is God's revelation to us of marriage's goodness, sanctity, and sweetness. And to hear of the concern of adultery is to hear of God's ultimate concern for His purpose for His marriage. So what we need to do this morning is to take these few words that are found in verse 14 and look in a number of different directions within our Bibles to hear what God is speaking to us and to understand what God would have us to delight in. In order to do this, we need to look backwards to the design of creation. We need to look intently to the actual concern for purity. And then we need to look ultimately to the picture of marriage itself. So what we'll attempt to do this morning is look to the design, the concern, and the picture. If we're going to understand the seventh commandment, we need to start prior to the seventh commandment. To hear God's prohibition against adultery is to really hear his affirmation and exaltation of the sanctity and goodness of marriage. And in order to understand the real issues surrounding adultery, we need to consider first the moral implications of God's design for marriage. So let's turn over in our Bibles to Genesis chapter 2. We need to hear God's design for marriage within creation. Genesis 2 beginning in verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat it you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to all the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam... 
there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed it up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of the man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. When we read or reread the creation account, we need to hear it as more than the recounting of history, but also as the stating of purpose. God did not merely create. We are intended to see that through his creation, he lays down intention and purpose. We're to move beyond the what of creation and to consider also why. And so to rightly understand this first marriage, we're meant to see God is the creator of all things, especially marriage. He created man in his own image, and he created them male and female. And by his good and wise design, this original marriage serves as the prototype for all marriage. This means something very important. It means that marriage is not an American invention. It means that marriage is not a human idea that we are then free to tweak with or manipulate or establish as we deem fit. When humanity rejects the design, the sanctity, the purpose of marriage, one man, one woman, till death do us part, what they're actually rejecting is God and His purpose and His design. So what aspects of God's design are we meant to hear in Genesis 2? There's a number. We could spend more time on this than the few minutes in front of us, but two need to be pulled to the surface and held on to as we consider what God says about adultery. Because the preservation of marriage through the protection and concern of adultery is seen when we understand God's design has something to do, first of all, with complementarity. When we think of God's design for marriage, we're meant to see in a particular way that the man and the woman uniquely fit together as complements for each other. We can see this back in verse 18. We just read it. I will make a helper fit for him. We hear it again in verse 20. The man gave names to all the livestock, to all the birds of the heavens, to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So at this point in creation, there is no suitable created being to complement Adam in what God has called him to do. To tend and to keep the garden, to rule over God's creation. And so what does God do? He didn't create another animal, nor did he create another Adam. He created woman. She was taken from man and given to a name in relationship to that very act. She was called woman because she was taken from man, and then God returned her to that man. 
She was taken from his side in order to be by his side as this suitable helper for Adam. So to say that a husband and a wife are complementary is to say that they have distinct roles and nature as man and woman, and that God has designed them to be complementary in their function in that distinction to what he's called them to do. It's really only through our understanding of complementarity that monogamy has any cohesive moral logic. We're prevented from saying or thinking that marriage can just be the arrangement of any two people as long as they love each other. That's not according to the design of marriage. That's a recreation of something else. Only a man and a woman are compatible as suitable partners. Only a man and a woman are compatible to be fruitful and multiply. So the complementary relationship is by God's design, and it's foundational for our understanding of biblical marriage. But it's not just this complementarity that is here. We also, if we're going to say something in passing, have to pull out God's design for oneness. We see this really in the last few verses that we read. The end of this account, verse 24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Notice that there is a trajectory, a direction within this design. A boy is raised by his parents, but there comes a time when he leaves his father and mother and holds fast to his wife, so much so that they actually become one flesh. It's a direction of movement where two individuals give up a single-minded individual pursuits and direct all their energy to the oneness of this union of marriage. Now, certainly each spouse maintains their identity as male and female, as individual image bearers of God. But marriage is a dissolving of the two independent and autonomous pursuits into a united pursuit of oneness. Well, the problem with that we often view marriage as two individuals moving side by side instead of two becoming one. Often marriage is considered a 50-50 share. Each person pulling their load, doing their respective parts. But the problem is when we think of two parts, it's much easier to think of separated parts. After all, they really aren't whole, they're just individuals who happen to be united in this particular task. But that's not at all what God emphasizes here. God's design for marriage is not a division of labor to better to tend and keep the garden, but a oneness of flesh to enjoy and fulfill the bonds of this calling. So what are we saying? Just as murder destroys the establishment of God's image upon humanity, and just as laboring for seven days with no regard for the Sabbath destroys God's design for rest, Adultery destroys God's design for marriage. So if marriage displays the design and authority of God, 
how ought we handle this established gift from God? And that leads to our second point. The design of creation makes us aware of this great concern for purity. There is this great concern for purity. Because of God's establishment of marriage and it being a treasure gift, we're to preserve it and protect it with all diligence. And because the law is concerned with spiritual matters, not only physical actions, we are again driven to consider the expressions of our heart. You shall not commit adultery. The concern of God's law is not merely in the observable outward action, but in the inward thoughts, loves, and appetites of the spiritual person. When we hear the law, whether it be right now, later this week, or 50 years from now, when we hear the law, we must allow it to press down to our hearts and our minds. I say this because that was the very emphasis of Christ. In order to understand this particular point, we need to turn to our New Testament. Let's turn over to Matthew chapter 5. Look down at verse 17. Matthew 5, verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you that until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until it's accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now look over at verse 27. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. What are we to hear from Jesus' exposition of the seventh commandment? First, Jesus would have us to know that our concern for purity lies at the root, not simply the fruit. Jesus says that adultery begins both in the heart and the eye. The heart moves the eye and inflames sinful passion. Therefore, we must not overlook the point that Jesus is making here. 
that the private sin of the heart or the mind is no less damnable than the physical acts of the body. What he's really emphasizing here is that the standard of righteousness is not the physical act, but the desire or posture of the heart. Meaning, a man or a woman could have always and only lain in the same bed as their spouse, only given themselves physically to their spouse, yet stand as guilty for the adulterous desires expressed in looks or thoughts or daydreams. But remember, while lustful intent is the root here of adultery, we must not think it's the only root. Perhaps you can look at your life, even the direction of your gaze, and honestly say, thankfully, Lustful intent is not a battle I'm having to fight. And then wrongfully conclude, therefore adultery is not really a concern for me. But we would be foolishly mistaken to assume that because lust is not our concern, that adultery then is not our concern. There are other roots that feed the fruit of adultery. Lust is certainly primary. But there are other things going on below the surface that we need to be aware of. Below the surface, in the soil of our hearts, we may find discontentment. We may find apathy. We may find a growing distance from our spouse. And when a husband or when a wife become discontent, their affections, their energy may drift from their spouse slowly, gradually, and from their concern to please God in this, and drift towards other good or even godly responsibilities towards work, towards caring for children towards serving other members at the church, towards recreation, towards other friendships. And over time, what happens is that devotion is channeled into other directions and energy is spent upon other areas and the idea or even the opportunity for adultery of heart or mind or action gradually grows and becomes more possible. Friends, the clear warning here is against desiring what is not ours or neglecting what is ours. Our concern for purity lies at the root, not simply upon the fruit. It's the first thing Jesus would have us hear. What's the second? That the concern for purity will be proven in our actions. These lustful thoughts are just as damaging and damnable as the physical act of adultery. We're to take appropriate action. Hence the application Jesus makes in 29 and 30 about gouging out right eyes and cutting off right hands if they cause us to sin. Now, 
Keep in mind, this literally cannot be the literal teaching of Jesus' intent, but a metaphor. After all, he's just made the point that lust is a problem of the heart. He's just labored to show that it's to these Pharisees, it's not just the external act, it is the heart. And so to move from that point, then to move to application, what is he seeking to underscore? That lopping off external appendages is not the real cause. But metaphorically, you need to understand the severity and swiftness to which you must take action. Think about what he's setting up here. Your right eye, it's a source of blessing. It's precious. It enables you to enjoy many of these God-given good sights. Your right hand is a blessing because with it, you're able to work and provide for others. You're able to pick up your kids, embrace your spouse, lift a glass, give thanks. But for as much good as these bring, they are worthless if they bring us into the very sins that would condemn us to hell. And is this not the great wrestling of our own conscience week by week, day by day? How much do I really need this app on my phone, on my home screen, if it so easily leads me into sin? How much do I really need that channel or that subscription if it predictively airs the very content that entices and inflames very desires that I'm trying to kill. How about that magazine subscription? That path that I walk in the afternoon? The block of free time that I carve out for myself? We may not be able to prevent certain thoughts from entering our minds, but once we do, we can resist them, set them aside, and not entertain them. It was Luther who said in classic Luther fashion that we cannot stop the birds from flying over our heads, but we can keep them from building nests in our hair. We cannot do away with the onslaught of impure thoughts that may flutter into our minds, but we most certainly can refuse to let them find a home there. So the evidence that we consider marital purity And God's design for sexual purity to be treasured will be proven in our efforts to preserve and protect. Proven in our watchfulness over our eyes and our ears. Is this stirring up the sort of thoughts or desires? The sort of thinking or justification that is going to give a foothold to my enemy so that I lose ground in this spiritual battle. It's going to be shown in the watchfulness over the company that I keep and the relationships that ultimately shape me, both physical and digital. Who do I follow? Who do I spend my free time with? What are they promoting? What are they justifying? What are they normalizing? It's going to be displayed in also positively the cultivation of the oneness of our marriages for those of us that are married. 
Am I making intentional efforts to delight in my spouse? Am I giving, are we giving one another the enjoyment of our bodies, cultivating marital intimacy through conversations, care, servanthood, the investment of time? The goodness and the purpose of marriage will be seen in our concern for purity. The design of creation, the concern of purity, but we need also to then lastly consider the picture of marriage. Because of God's overarching purpose for marriage, we are swept up into a solemn privilege and the greatest comfort. The greatest offense of adultery is not ultimately the earthly damage that it does within homes and churches, but the distorted picture that it paints of Christ in the church. Turn over to Ephesians chapter 5. What is the picture that marriage is intended to paint? Ephesians 5, verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ... So also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives. As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with words, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So what sort of picture is given to us here through the marriage of a husband and a wife. Number one, it's a picture that shows us the meaning of marriage. According to the scripture and by God's design, the goal of marriage points to something greater. It tells a story. Marriage is a living drama between the covenant-keeping love between Christ and his bride, the church. And just like many other created objects that God gives to us, It's given to not merely exist as that particular object, but given to point us to a greater reality. Earthly marriage serves as a picture, as an image, as a metaphor for a spiritual reality. 
just as bread is not just bread. But it reminds us of God's sustaining, satisfying provision in Christ. Just how water is not just water. It reminds us of cleansing from sin that Jesus brings. And how fire is not just fire. But it reminds us of the testing and the trial that refines our faith. So too, marriage is not just marriage. It reminds us of how Christ relates to his church. What Paul is saying is that marriage has its highest purpose as it exists to be a retelling of this wonderful story of how Christ pursues and loves and serves and remains faithful to his bride, the church. That God designed the Christian husband and wife to come together in such a way that this union of Christ can be displayed and observed. Notice Paul's emphasis here upon the mystery of Christ in the church. That it only actually works if there's a distinction and a differentiation in the marital union. This should cause us to pause and think and be careful before we start to get sloppy with our words and our application by saying things like, how beautiful it is to consider Christ in the church, this mutual indwelling of love and support. This wonderful picture of two people coming together, showing love and support. Certainly marriage should be an expression of that, but that's not the argument Paul is making here. His argument is one of differentiation. Specifically, the husband loves, leads, nourishes, serves, and sacrifices just like Christ. And the wife submits, honors, and respects just like the church. The mysterious picture of marriage is the husband cherishing like Christ, and the wife submitting like the church. And it's a two-way picture. The earthly picture pointing to the heavenly reality, and the heavenly reality pointing down and forming the earthly picture. They are meant to both point backwards and forwards so that we understand what this picture is. Meaning that when we look at the Christian husband, we should see and we should hear this echo of Christ. And when we consider Christ's sacrificial love, we should think of particular husbands and the example that they set and the way that they love their wives. Likewise, when we look at Christian wives honoring and submitting to their husbands, It ought to call to mind the same way that the bride of Christ seeks to submit herself to Christ. And when we see the church submitting herself and honoring the rule of Christ, we ought to think of specific examples of godly wives who submit to their husbands. The picture is intended to tell a story. It's intended to tell us about this mystery of Christ in the church. And just as children learn to read, 
with giant pictures and very small, simple words. We are meant to learn of Christ and the church through these glorious pictures and these very clear, small words like love and sacrifice, honor and submission. The picture displayed before us and these words that we begin to learn and understand this mystery of Christ and the church. It is a picture that's given to us by God to reveal the meaning of marriage. But lastly, it's also a picture that is given to us to display the greatest comfort we could ever know. Every earthly marriage is established to tell a heavenly story. It's a story of unfaithfulness being swallowed up by the faithfulness of Christ. It is a story of a bridegroom who runs with great joy towards a bride who has not been faithful. It is a story of an undeserving bride being cherished by a gracious bridegroom. That is the story of Christ in the church. And friends, this picture of Christ in the church is meant to give us help, regardless if you're married or divorced, single or widowed. This picture of marriage, which displays Christ in the church, is given to us so that we might find great comfort in our temptation, in our waywardness, and ultimately in our brokenheartedness. How? Well, there's great comfort here for the tempted. I'm speaking to those who are literally feeling the pull towards something forbidden and being caught up in this riptide of something unnatural, maybe even considering how you deserve some sort of gratification, pondering small ways that you could dabble, linger, or find comfort in just the mere edges of sin. Then you need to look to the picture of Christ in the church. Hear God's word. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. 1 Corinthians 10, 12 and 13. Tempted brother, tempted sister, memorize it. Become familiar with it. Let the path to that particular portion of Scripture be well-worn in your Bible. And follow also the path to Lamentations 3, 22, reminding you that the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in Him. The Lord is good to those who wait for Him, to the soul that seeks Him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Temptation is real. Sin is deadly. But Christ is more compassionate than you realize, and communion with Him is more intimate than you imagine. 
He is sufficient refuge against the onslaught of temptation. Because Jesus Christ is the faithful bridegroom and he is the one who stands as your merciful and faithful high priest. He's sympathetic of our weaknesses and he's stronger than our weaknesses. And by providing gracious power in the midst of temptation, our friend, merciful forgiveness in the reality of sin. There is great comfort in this picture. But there's also sobering comfort for the wayward. I'm thinking here of those who are living double lives, marked by patterns of deception, plotting ways to cover up tracks, to live in the dark, to the one who thinks that showing up on a Sunday morning for a few hours somehow offsets or at least eases somehow the unrepentant sin that fills out the pattern of the rest of the week. Friend, hear God's word. You too need to hear the loving warnings from God's word. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. The one who sows to his flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. But sexuality... Sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you? Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. Scriptures warn us that we cannot be a friend of the world and a friend of God. You must choose whom you will serve. And that's why we must hear the sobering comfort that comes through gracious warnings, calling us to confess, to repent, and to believe in what God has promised. There is sobering comfort for the wayward, but there is also sweet comfort for the brokenhearted. This picture speaks loudly. I'm speaking here to those who are well aware of their sin. Not excusing it, not downplaying it, hating it, striving to put it to death, to forsake it. Friend, God has comforting words for you. Comforting words for the humble, for the contrite, for the broken, for the wounded, that bow before the cross. What are those words? There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh. Hear the Apostle John. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. 
If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Earthly marriages display a heavenly picture. And this picture is filled frame to frame with the abounding grace of God in Christ, where sinners experience sacrificial love, faithful care, cleansing and washing and comfort from a faithful head who is the risen Lord Jesus, Jesus Christ the righteous. So to hear the prohibition against adultery is to hear of the wonderful goodness of marriage. And I'll say it again. Regardless if you are single, divorced, widowed, married, we must rejoice in the goodness of marriage because of what it proclaims to us. The grand mystery of Christ and the church. Were you dead in your trespasses and sins and yet made alive by the mercy of God? Was your life once marked out by the passions of your flesh, given over to worldly pursuits, but now you delight in good works and walking after His ways? Were you once far off, having no hope and without God in this world, but now you've been brought near by the blood of Christ? If you can say yes to that, then you can also rejoice in this gracious gift of marriage that points you to this wonderful picture of Christ in the church. Because it is through his church that the wisdom of God is revealed, and it is through his church that the grace of God is displayed. The mystery of a husband and a wife is profound. And it is to be protected, cultivated, cherished, because it refers to Christ, and to the church. Father, we thank you for your good design. We thank you for your wisdom, your graciousness, and the great kindness that you display to us plainly and boldly in the giving of your Son for us. Lord, we pray that as we consider this good gift that you have given, that you would grow us in our love for the goodness of your design, our love for our spouses, and our love for marriages that reflect your good purposes. Father, grow us ultimately in our great delight and our great awe in this mystery that is your Son and His faithfulness, swallowing up our unfaithfulness in all of our impurity. Lord, we pray that you would continue to grow us in comfort and delight and a great rejoicing of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.